Hi, I'm Natalie Wires, along with Jason Nias from Digital River, an e-commerce company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our times. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started, lessons they've learned that have gotten them to where they are today, and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hi, this is Jason Nias from Digital River, and today on Commerce Connect, we're talking about you, as in the customer. Businesses that offer great customer experiences generally do much better in e-commerce businesses than ones that don't. But getting it right when it comes to the customer experience isn't always easy. Our guest today is Mike Jortberg, who is an expert in customer experience and strategy for both business-to-consumer and business-to-business brands. He's Global Salesforce Practice Sales Director for Slalom, a global strategy, technology, and business transformation company. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Thrilled to be here. That's a mouthful. How does one become a global Salesforce practice sales director? (laughs) Uh, You know, Slalom's an interesting place in that it's been growing rapidly. And so our our, everybody's jobs have kind of shifted as things have changed over time. Um, When I started five and a half years ago, we were just a small $35 million kind of regional SI, as people call us. And Salesforce was probably 10% of the Slalom portfolio. Uh, fast forward five years, it's now about 20, 25% of the business and north of 400 million. And we also have about 100 million Tableau business. Uh, so um, as expertise and as Salesforce has morphed by both acquisition as well as geographic expansion, uh, we've had to do the same. So my job, I've probably had 10 jobs between the five years. Um, in the last two and a half years, I've been launching our B2B commerce practice, uh, mostly as a result of the Salesforce acquisition of CloudCraze in Chicago. And then last year we started and ramped up a B2C commerce practice. And now we're running a, a dedicated commerce team of about 30 people with on average about eight years experience. And this team is some of the best in the industry. They've touched north of 550 sites over their careers. Uh, and we don't acquire companies. These are all hand hired people uh, and they work. And so I've been fortunate enough to you know, start a few things here and then bring in you know, expertise from both Slalom markets and from outside places um, to build up a, a really crack commerce technology deployment team in partnership with our Slalom strategy team as well as an experienced design team, set of teams. So when you start to mix all those three things together, you can end up with answer, helping customers answer questions about, should I be in commerce? And if so, how, which segments, which products, new, old, uh, and then the design of a commerce program and how it integrates or doesn't integrate with service and sales and marketing. And then obviously the platform uh, implementation and integrations. So all of those types of things you end up bumping into. And so, um, you know, they've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to just be able to focus on customer conversations on helping companies design their first or convert from an old to a new or think through uh, how to pick and choose what you do on day one in commerce. And we bumped into Digital River through both variety of relationships in our Minneapolis market, but also just the, the need for speed um, to play video game analogies for people to turn on commerce. And, you know, when I heard about 
uh, Digital River a couple of about two or three months ago, it was like, wait, you can do tax payment and fraud in one instead of three everywhere around the world. And, you know, we immediately had customers jump onto that. Um, and so, you know, I'm thrilled to be here and really excited for the conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you for the, uh, the quick overview. That was actually going to be my, my first question is, is a little bit more about slalom. I mean, you guys are pretty unique. Um, you know, Digital River works with a, a bunch of SIs um, who deliver a bunch of, of value. But I think slalom is, is really quite unique. And, and one of the things that I, I mean on that is uh, you touched on it on the intro. You don't grow through acquisition. No, you grow because you develop, you see a need in the market and you develop and hire expertise and you build practices around it. That's one. But yeah. second, talk about your local model. Cause I really, I really think that's the thing that separates you from the, the, the folks you would compete with. You agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, the combination of the local intimacy and the global depth of expertise in a topic like commerce or health or financial services or retail or whatever. Um, when I started, I understood local was experienced consultants who don't have to travel, right? Used to work at Accenture, used to work at wherever, and I'd get it on a plane and I'd disappear. And I live in this city, but I've never done a project in this city. And so therefore, I'm on, a, on the road, you know, Monday through Friday. And we don't do that. Our local consultants have the experience, but they're working with the clients in their local city. So you have an economic benefit to the client that they're not paying for Marriott and American Airlines every project. But what really struck me was two things happened to me early in my first probably three months at the company. I was in Seattle. I'm on our global team, so I do travel and I work with all the cities. And I'm in Seattle. We're walking into an elevator on a Tuesday morning. It's pouring rain. There are backpacks and coffee and umbrellas, right? It's commute. And I'm with my local guy, and I had flown in the night before. And he's going riding the elevator up, and everyone's dripping on each other. And they're talking about the soccer game with their kids over the weekend. And I'm just a fly on the wall and you know the customer obviously a, a slalom customer got off the elevator went to his building uh, floor we went to the next floor and and our local uh, sales leader turned and said do you know who that is i said no he's the cfo of our customer so we went to high school together and our kid i'm i'm his kid's soccer coach and i was like that's local you know and then it happened another about three weeks later uh, we found a possible project in the washington dc market and I called up our local team and they're like, oh, Nick, yeah, I, he was at my wedding. I used to babysit his kids. And so what we have is a mix of highly qualified local consultants that you don't have to pay for travel. And they have a higher degree of personal commitment to the projects because it's not, you know, random assignment by consultant algorithm and they 12 people pop up from anywhere in the world. These are people that work together on a regular basis. And then if they need that commerce expertise from our team, we can zip in and provide that. So it's created a pretty interesting niche and our partners are, you know, uh, the cloud vendors of Salesforce, Amazon, Microsoft, Tableau, Google. And so we've been very fortunate to be have, in our headquarters is Seattle. So right, Amazon and Microsoft and Tableau are based there. Um, and we've been very fortunate to have good um, partnership Relation, partner relationships with both the big boys in the cloud space as well as, um, you know, smaller uh, ISVs and, and technology partners like Digital River because um, that local plus global capacity and talent has really worked out well for us. We'll talk a little bit more. So I, I love your model. I, I've, I've, I've known you guys for years and, you know, there's there's a handful of ex-Digital River people like Glenn Stoller who's, who's mm -hmm. shown up at Slalom and in Minneapolis here. 
Uh, but talk a little bit more about how the local teams in places like Seattle or with mm -hmm. Jason Paycor in Boston or Rob mm -hmm. up in Seattle, how they leverage your global expertise on things like commerce. I mean, you guys probably have practice leaders that, that you, you need to be able to tap into some global expertise from time to time to help augment local regional knowledge and skill sets. Is that how it works? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the local markets have obviously industry uh, flavors, right? The Los Angeles market and the Houston market and the Detroit market might have some industry focus, right? So we'd rather have them invest in that than have them try and be experts in everything in Salesforce or Microsoft or Amazon. It's not possible to be an expert in any of those one platforms. It's not, you can't, learn enough and do enough projects to have any bench and depth of expertise. So every market has a general manager and managing directors for the various practice areas. And you may have an expert in commerce in Dallas or Fort Worth or San Diego or Japan or Manchester, um, but you may not. Uh, and a lot of that depends on the age of the market. Um, they're born on dates <laughs> for markets. We have some that are old and big like Boston, Seattle, Chicago, and we have some that are young and new, like Austin and Tokyo and Australia and Miami. And so those markets rely more on the global team than the established markets. And then you just have the sheer volume of expertise that you need to have in this cloud technology. You know, let's go find an expert in Snowflake on Amazon. You know, who is the leading expert in that? Odds are you can't have just one in St. Louis and one in Detroit and one in Philadelphia. Over time, that may grow, but it's better to invest in that in a shared service model, and that's where our global team comes in. And so we have, you know, machinery and operations that, you know, help clients and help um, consultants tap into our team uh, preemptively when we see things. Uh, we publish the trends. We monitor the new things that are coming out. The Slack announcement's a great example. The, any acquisition by Salesforce triggers a whole flurry of activity. Um, but then there's just the, the rampant product um, motions that these cloud companies come out with. You have to have somebody sit on top of that and be able to easily distribute it so that 34 markets can act consistently. Yep. You talk about you talked about Slack, the fact that Salesforce acquired it earlier. You mentioned Tableau. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the fact that Salesforce bought Cloud Craze. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of talk us through a little bit more of that. Uh, sales, obviously, your title, your role, your life revolves around making sure that people understand and can get into Salesforce capabilities. Right. Talk, talk to me a little bit more about what happens when Salesforce ac acquires Slack. What, do, what does slalom go do? Do they, do they go look for expertise to start build a practice around it or how quickly does that happen? It depends. Uh, there's no, I mean, there's some general patterns um, and, and, you know, there's Salesforce, Salesforce makes a huge number of acquisitions over the years. Some of them are not material. Others are, are highly relevant. Um, so in the, in the demandware space, for example, when they acquired the B2C commerce solution demandware, we were not, present at all. Um, and so we elected to pause uh, jumping into that right away because we'd, we wouldn't be competitive. Uh, when they bought Steelbrick, we had done a little bit of CPQ work here and there, but we knew it was going to be big. So we started an entire practice on it and went out and hired and built that muscle. Cloud Craze, we were involved pre-acquisition 
So we just scaled that faster and we were part of their initial uh, partners who started that up and we ended up writing the training forum and on our partner advisory board. Um, Slack's a little bit different because the scope of it is enormous. Uh, Tableau is a little bit different because we have a very substantial Tableau practice and a Salesforce practice. Um, and so each one of those has a unique approach, but it comes down to customer demand and, and creativity. Um, you know, you see Tableau being used inside Salesforce and you see um, other types of tools like maps being used inside Salesforce, inside their industry products. And so we have to, you know, not only have the, the technical expertise for that product solution, if there's something unique about it, uh, but then you have to have the domain expertise of, you know, is there somebody in the GIS space that's really understands mapping and you can get that consultant on a phone call. So in the mapping case, Esri uh, in, in, in the LA market is a huge, obviously, GIS company, and they're a big slalom customer and a big Salesforce customer. So what's the difference between Salesforce maps and Esri? And when does one use each? Well, we have expertise in that, and we can go publish and, and share that knowledge as consultants across our, our population and help customers try and figure out, should I be using maps in my consumer goods route management application, or should I be using Esri? In public sector, if I need to do water, you know, um, mapping, uh, you know, floodplain mapping in a public sector segment, should we use Esri or should we use maps? Those are the types of things that we can really jump into. Gotcha. Well, Pat, uh, do me a favor. I'd love to learn more about your career path, uh, how you got to where you are. Um, can you take us through your journey uh, and some of the career stops you've had sure. uh, and, and maybe some highlights along the way? Yeah, I started, um, I was at Marquette uh, studying public relations and, um, you know, thought I would be able to come out of school and do some writing and, and maybe TV or radio or something. And the industry was just $5 an hour. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, and my sister was working at IBM at the time. I put a 22 cent stamp, I wasn't even 22 cents at the time, and picked up an interview with a branch manager at IBM and ended up running a, a database marketing program in a, in a branch man, in a branch in Chicago. Um, then went to a six person startup and this is an AS 400 CRM. It wasn't even CRM at the time vendor doing database marketing and inside selling and ended up going to 280 IBM branch offices all around the world, putting in this product on us on an AS 400. Um, and so that was my first exposure to both hands-on, application implementations as well as CRM. Which product, uh, which product was it, Mike? Was it Siebel? Long gone. No, this is a company called Marketing Information Systems. It was ended up being acquired by another company in Trumbull, Connecticut called Telemar, or mm -hmm. Information Management Associates. Both are long gone. We were competing with Brock and SalesLogix. And then this thing called Siebel came along and they hit the market at the same time that Windows became a standard. Our downfall at MIS was we had 24 developers four on six operating systems. <laughs> That's not a good model. Um, and then I spent six years at Hewitt Associates, now part of Aon, and I was doing uh, software management in the HR space and executive compensation software and sales and marketing uh, compensation and quota setting, a lot of data analysis on compensation and data. And then I moved to Siebel where I was running uh, and helping run um, sales engineering. So helping run the demo side of, of Siebel sales and then uh, launched their first on-demand product with IBM. Heard of Salesforce as this little competitor in 2002. Uh, left uh, Siebel and went to a company called Axiom, which is in the data business and marketing outsourcing business. 
uh, started a little business there and was handed the keys to the Salesforce instance. And people thought we were a group of 20 people and it was me and another person part-time, but we were super efficient with Salesforce. Um, and then I joined a company called Model Metrics that was acquired by Salesforce. So I went from competitor to customer to partner to employee. Uh, and then I joined Slalom about five and a half years ago and I was then partner again. And then we ended up buying some software for Salesforce and I was involved in the implementation internally. So I became a customer. So now I'm a partner customer. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, that's such a unique uh, path you've taken. I mean, you've got human capital planning, you've got ERP, mm -hmm. you've got data management. As you said, you were a customer, then a competitor, then a partner. Really nice package of experience that, that uh, you bring to the table related to Salesforce. It's been fun. I, 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 and it's funny because I, I look at the time now, I'm like most excited now than ever before it feels like for the next three to five years of what we're doing in commerce and CRM and the Slack thing is like eye popping and there's just so much activity and COVID has, it's a terrible thing, but man, has it driven digital? Um, it is a forcing function like I've never seen. I'll never forget late April thinking party's over right? 10 years of high demand for talent for cloud computing skills in the application space. And I thought March, April, I was like, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a rough, this is going to be a rough 10 years. This isn't going to go well. And the exact opposite has happened. We're hiring salespeople and we're hiring recruiters. It's just so, so, so active right now. It really is turned into kind of like the Y2K for digital transformation. You know, there's this just demand for going global, going direct, digital transformation, all the things that you guys help with. This is the conversation that at least we're having in spades and I'm sure you yes. are as well. Yeah, the volume of, of inbound requests for this focus area is, is just, it's almost overwhelming. Unpack some of that for me. Um, I'd love to learn more about how Slalom is responding to COVID. I mean, your, your hyper-local model is a differentiator in a lot of ways because you don't have to pay for travel and you know, you're, you're the kid's soccer coach. Um, but, and you guys basically walk the halls of every company you work with. That used to be a huge advantage for you mm -hmm. with most kind of buildings closed. How have you overcome that? And how do you guys continue to basically turn something that used to be on site into something that's now remote? A uh, couple, of, couple of facets to that. So first of all, from the employee base, we immediately committed not to lay anyone off. Um, and we immediately started saving on our own travel and, and, and event marketing costs and put that into our own employees. Um, that was one. The second was we saw an enormous lift in the need for the public, the local public sector teams to execute uh, projects. So an immediate spike in chatbot uh, immediate spike in uh, virtual call centers and an immediate spike in COVID health applications. We're putting in virus tracking solutions. We're putting in DMV chatbots. We're putting in that has easily gone up 400% year over year. So the interesting piece of that is that everything ended up being hundred percent remote. Um, and it opened the door for us to staff people from LA into Portland or Chicago into Dallas without wrecking the working environment of spending 
you know, three to four days in a hotel. So it opened up a whole new area of opportunity for us. And like everybody, we all had to adapt to the online component of it. But we just saw a shift in the business um, right away. Uh, and then we, we started putting out the work.com solutions for customers uh, with Salesforce. That's a, that's a tool to help track um, scheduling and uh, employee, employee sell, health and safety and other, other solutions. The chatbot one was a real shocker. That I think people in the digital call centers and the, the service the, in need in public sector for service desk were the ones that really jumped off the table uh, when you look at the data in terms of volume. Um, and in terms of competitiveness, you know, we still have competitive rates and we still have those local relationships. It's just that, you know, the president of one of the business units that I work with, he's four doors away. He's actually in Florida because he moved. Um, but our daughters went to school together. So we still have a personal relationship. It's just now we see each other over the screen instead of uh, in person at the coffee shop. Wow. This has been a really, I hate to say it this way, but it's been a positive impact on slalom. I mean, you guys, it sounds like you guys have a massive increase in demand for all sorts of services and you've become more efficient. Local yeah. now means local plus local on time zone versus local in your, in your building. Yeah. And so it's had, I mean, it's it definitely certain areas are very, very challenging, right? I mean, it's not like the travel agency project we were on that, that ended. <laughs> um, so there's, uh, it was not, it was not smooth sailing by any means. Um, but we're doing just a ton more with the nonprofits and the government space and the health space. That's really meaningful work for some employees to really try and help solve this riddle. So, you know, as I, uh, as I read through your bio and, and uh, it looks like you have, you're very active and you're engaged. It looks like you're a freelance photographer. Can you explain <laughs> to what mile split is and, and how you're involved with that? I, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I've always been active running and, you know, I think I did my first triathlon when I was 17. Um, my brother did the Ironman before people even heard of it, even heard of it. And then um, my wife's run probably Boston five times and so we're a very active uh, couple and kids got into it and, you know, son's running track. He's throwing down a 430 mile. Uh, next daughter jumps into it. She ends up uh, qualifying for state. And Mile Split is a, is a well-known running um, community. And uh, the team that runs that and one couple of photographers saw some of the pictures I had taken. And, you know, you post stuff online and, and they're like, hey, we want you to to shoot for us. And so I started, you know, shooting for them and they'd give you a t-shirt and hat and you'd get access to the events, which was pretty cool. And so, um, it's just fun. You know, I there's a bunch of people who, uh, you become the unofficial friendly photographer and people look at these pictures. And if you know how to take good sports pictures, you know, it's not you with an iPhone <laughs> scanning and people appreciate it. Um, and so we're, the, the team is going to do a, a bunch of banners inside the high school. And I think my stuff might show up there. I've had some national coverage on a couple of different things. So it's nothing, nothing. Um, it's a hobby. That's all, but it's just a lot of fun. So one of the things I like to make sure we do on this podcast is if people want to get in touch with you, Mike, and, and have a conversation around Salesforce or anything, what's the best way to do it? LinkedIn's probably the best. Uh, Mike Jordberg, it's out there. I've put a couple of articles about commerce out there from B2B when the cloud craze acquisition happened. And I monitor and track uh, when the Salesforce ecosystem changes with services acquisitions. So you can see some things I've written out there over the years. 
Excellent. Excellent. So we'll ask our readers to reach out on LinkedIn, send you a message and, and start a conversation with Mike. Um, the, a couple of the traditions we have on this uh, podcast is, you know, as a, as a bit of a tastemaker around consumer experience, uh, what do you think is a great example of a company doing it right? Who really, who, who really, exo- uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, who really demonstrates a great customer experience and why? Do you have any that come to mind or projects perhaps your company's worked on? Yeah, I think um, in the B2C space, I've always been blown away by USAA. Uh, my dad was a, a Navy veteran, um, was in the nuclear submarine uh, space forever and 20 some year veteran of the US Navy from World War II all the way through the 70s. Uh, and I'll never forget being online one day with USAA probably two or three years, maybe probably two years ago. And I couldn't find what I was looking for uh, in my account in the insurance, uh, whatever it was. And so I picked up the phone and I called and their VRU noticed, knew that I was online and I was looking at auto insurance policy something. Uh, and it preempted the 19 VRU, press this for this, for this, for this, authenticate yourself, because my phone was registered. And it said, would you like for me to transfer you to somebody who can speak to you about auto policies? And I went, holy crap, they're in the room with me. Uh, and it saved me, you know, 10 minutes of tinkering around and trying to get to somebody who knows what I want. They knew that I was struggling, and I knew they knew exactly what I was looking for. And so it, that was, I've never seen that done before. And I think that if we could pull that off in B2B, that would be amazing. That would be really amazing to be able to anticipate what people need and what they want and why they're calling. And I think the data is there, but leveraging it and harnessing it is going to be tricky. Um, and doing it so it's not creepy is a challenge in, in, in privacy respection. Um, those are the types of things that I think stand out. And then there's, there's, another, there's another number of companies that blend both B2C and to B2B that are fascinating. Um, the IT software security space, um, office furniture space, Barry is a great example of a route to market that starts with B2C but then uh, for, for rising desks, but then immediately moves into B2B office furniture. Which, which company the, was that, Veridesk? Well, they're called Veri now, but they were Veridesk. And they started their journey by advertising rising desks in airplane magazines. And now they're a huge B2B office products company, but they started with the route to market is B2C and they have the appropriate tools for the appropriate routes to market. And they do a wonderful job mixing and matching how that, how that happens for a very seamless customer experience. Another great example. I would be remiss if I didn't also comment on a, a competitor of theirs called Ergotron who, mm-hmm. uh, who started exactly. in fact yeah. opposite B2B Yep. And is 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 dipping their toe in the in the B two C arena as well. A Digital River client, which is also of course and Minneapolis based, so I got to bring them up as well. Yes. Well, you know, you you started to to kind of tap on my next question, which is, you, you guys sit at the uh, at the intersection between big brands and strategy, and you guys and, and execution, and you really help companies both develop their strategy, but also put it in market and and grow it. You used a really good example about USAA. What are, what are some of the trends that you're starting to see show up right now that we'll see in 2021? Is there anything that kind of sticks out in your mind of you're hearing this over and over of something chatbots, a good example, but uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think commerce as a standalone function, I think is going to go away. 
over the next five years. It's everything. So when we start conversations with customers, I say, are you thinking about commerce from a marketing, a selling, or a service function? And they kind of like, well, what do you mean? It's commerce. I said, I know. But what if it's customer acquisition versus show me my invoice, right? And so I don't think there's a lot of people running around trying to hire VPs of commerce. I think everybody needs to add 10% of commerce to their job or 25% of commerce or maybe 50% of your job is now commerce. And I don't think the world is, the B2B world is not ready for that like the B2C space is. And so that to me is a, a fundamental shift. And the guys, you know, there's a book called Billion Dollar B2B Commerce um, that's out there. And, and he talks about, there's, a, there's an apocalypse, the retail apocalypse wiped out Sears and millions of other stores because of Amazon. That could happen in B2B because smart B2B sellers are going to continue to press more and more into commerce. And if you wait too long, you could get smoked and not even know it. And the pace of change is so fast that um, new players and new entrants and venture money and direct-to-consumer is just, I feel bad for somebody who's like, well, we're thinking about doing it. We might start it in 2022. I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> it might be too late because there's just someone's doing it in your space. You better figure out who and how and either join up or, uh, and that's what we're seeing is people trying to start super fast, which is why we love the digital river model, right? I can do three things with one integration, sign me up. Right. Um, and that's when people say, I want to turn on an MVP commerce site in 12 weeks. Okay. Have you ever done it before? Nope. I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> okay, well then we need to we need to focus and simplify uh, so we don't make a mess of things. Yeah, and focus on your what you're really supposed to be good at, which is developing great products and great go to markets, and you know leave the rest to experts like you know slalom, and hopefully you bring us along as well on your journey when you win. Well, it's worked so far, so yeah. Yep. Well, I love that you referenced Brian Beck's book, uh, Billion Dollar. Uh, B2B e-commerce. We actually had Brian on one of our early podcasts as well. And he mentioned, oh, good. so very consistent. Yeah, I, I, actually, I feel like I, I'm listening to his book. I think he's like been in my office for the last four years. It's kind of creepy. It's great. He's a really good guy. I actually recommend to reach out to him uh, directly. Yeah, we have over LinkedIn. I've, I'm, I think I've recommended his book five times in the last five days to people who are like scratching their head on how to do this. I'm like, look, we don't have time to explain it all, but here's a good book. Here's a good series of podcasts. So. Yeah, what, uh, one of my one of my other questions that I ask everybody is, where do you get your influence? Who do you learn from? Who do you kind of get great ideas from? And uh, I was out at a, a, a company we work with uh, on site, and in the podcast, he had mentioned Brian Beck, and I had never heard of him. Or <laughs> met him. And so I reached Good. out directly to him to yeah. have this conversation. And you're absolutely right; he's he's the real deal. Yeah, no doubt. I, I mean, um, I, the Salesforce space is full of unbelievably innovative people um, in both at Salesforce and their competitors and their partners, right? So Conga, DocuSign, uh, Seven Summits, our competitors, DocMation and Simplus. These guys just do amazing, really cool stuff. Um, you know, and so that's, I think those are just fun people to hang out with. I just wish we could go to Dreamforce and, and really learn from each other more and more. And then, you know, outside of tech, um, David Epstein is a guy who's written a book called Range and another book called The Sports Gene. Uh, and he's just, he grew up around here and, you know, ran the same tracks that our kids have run. And so he's fun. His book is pretty cool. Um, 
Michael Lewis is just also a fun writer. He's got some fun, crazy books. Not and a then lot Salesforce. Of e-commerce, but. No, nothing on e-commerce. I, you know, you get enough of that during the day. But my, you know, all the a lot of the leaders that Mark uh, Benioff has acquired uh, from some of their companies uh, or people who have left, um, like Mike Milburn at Salsify or David Schmeyer, who was at Siebel and now Velocity, and Adam Blitzer, who did Pardot and then Exact Target and then Salesforce. I mean, some of those people are just. Anytime you can hear them speak and talk, it's just fascinating. Well, by the time this airs, um, you, uh, Dreamforce, the virtual version, will have already been, have happened. Uh, but are you participating in the virtual Dreamforce? Gonna, how are you going to fill that void? Well, we are proud to say that a slalom employee was the first person interviewed on the 2020 Dreamforce. Uh, a guy named Aaron McGriff, if you watched it, Uh, was interviewed by the comedian right before Mark announced the Slack acquisition. And Aaron has a pretty amazing story. And if you haven't read that, um, you know, Google Aaron McGriff and Salesforce and Slalom, and you can read his story. It's a, it's a fascinating, amazing story. Uh, And then we're doing a lot of sessions with customers, right? Dreamforce to you is where we tailor content. Um, And we've done a number of webcasts uh, over the year that have been repurposed. Um, And so those, some snippets of that get pushed into the Dreamforce content machine. Perfect. How does uh, how a uh, question for you about how does Salesforce listen to some of its strategic partners like Slalom? Are you guys part of an advisory board? Yep. How do they how do they keep you engaged and current and pick your brain on what they can do better or who they should acquire? You unpack a little of that for us. <laughs> they don't ask us who they should acquire. <laughs> um, well, we are on two partner advisory boards and two technical advisory boards in the commerce space. Uh, we have a number of those relationships across a lot of the different clouds, whether it's analytics or field service or financial services or what have you. Uh, many of the partners are on those boards. And so when you have a bulk of business, um, there's formal meetings and there's formal um, processes to provide that input. They have their ideas exchange or, or you input and, and filter ideas and everybody gets to vote on those. So there's a, a bit of a community voting process for, for, for feature improvements. Um, Obviously, their total addressable market has shifted as time has changed, and so we have to uh, we have to adapt to that. But they they're great at listening. I think they also use a lot of data about what people use in their own system. And I think probably I suspect that someday we'll we'll learn from inside Salesforce how well they study how people use things. And the examples that I look at is when they launch an industry product, like manufacturing cloud just came out or consumer goods cloud just came out or the velocity products, the product market fit for the niche features in those cloud products is spot on every time. I've, it's not like, hey, there's an announcement and there's nothing behind it. You look at it and you go, wow, we've had to build that 14 times and now it's a product. That's awesome. And so they do that over and over and over. And it's just, it's like clockwork. And every four months, there's a new release and there's a feature that people go, wow, that's great. We love that. One came out on YouTube today. It's going viral inside our company. It's how to see the timeline of a inter- series of interactions with a customer or a contact from all the different places inside Salesforce. And it's this really cool visualization of the relationship that it's not rows and columns, right? You can really look at a calendar and see your interactions. And it's just little things like that over and over and over is just a sustainable competitive advantage over a Microsoft or an Oracle or an Adobe, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, you said something there that I think is pretty important. Um, Salesforce has just been phenomenal at these industry-focused capabilities. 
And I think it lends itself very nicely to what you described, Mike, early on around Slalom's local strategy. Because local ultimately, what it ultimately does is get you very deeply ingrained in certain uh, industries. You know, you, you talked about Houston versus LA versus Seattle. There's different industries that live in those in those areas. And so uh, that probably lends itself pretty nicely to your relationship with Salesforce and, and their strategy around industry capabilities. You agree with that? Yeah, very much so. We definitely have pockets of expertise um, in different places that we also kick up to the national level. So we have national leaders in financial services and health cloud and retail and CPG, and they work very closely with the local markets where those industries are highly prevalent. That's great. And uh, to close us out, you know, we've got a couple thousand listeners all over the world, and uh, I'd love for you to let them know where Slalom is local, uh, and because uh, that might help people re- recognize if they should be reaching out and, and starting a conversation with Slalom. So where, where do you have uh, local offices? Yeah, um, there's 27 or so in the U.S., um, so they're all uh, denser on the, on the west than the east. Um, but we're growing the East quite a bit, um, but pretty much everywhere in the U.S., I would say. And then uh, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal are covered. Uh, London has, or the U.K. is London and Manchester, soon to have the Netherlands. Um, that was on the table for this year that obviously had to get postponed. And then Australia and Japan opened up this year as well for Tokyo and two, the two cities in Australia, uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Fantastic. Well, Mike, thank you so much for investing the time with me today. Congrats on a really successful 2020. And uh, thanks again for your partnership and looking forward to uh, 21. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to Commerce Connect, brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to digitalriver.com.